2021 of High Fantasy, and we're joined by a special guest of Daniel Wilson, PhD. Haha. And we'll start with our, uh, as usual, talking about our progress. So, Jacob and Colin, have you progressed in the past two weeks? Uh, a bit. We so Andromeda's Love, the book I'm co-writing. Uh, we're we decided to sort of. Uh, get at least the first quarter or so ready for a beta read so that's what we've done and it's it's in that beta read stage so we've been kind of pushing that out to people so not as much writing a lot more editing and rewriting this last couple of weeks however long it's been i've been taking every major story that i've actually made significant progress on and just trying to create visuals of where they are and seeing which one is the one I most want to work on. So I've been working on an old nano project that has been gathering dust for a little while now. Interesting. I finally got myself into uh, working on stories and characters again for the, the diner graphic novel I want to do. Cause like I can't jump into just starting to write right now, but I can do world building easy. So that's me. That's so, all you do. That's all you do is world. Shut up. I do write sometimes. <laughs> so Daniel, what have hey. you been doing lately? <laughs> uh, let's see. I have, a, I have a new novel coming out August 1st, so I've been gearing up for that. I guess I'm headed off to Comic-Con next week to talk about that, and then off on a book tour. So um, it's kind of like the calm before the storm right now for me. Um, I'm trying to do all the other projects that I, you know, because obviously writing is, is a lot more fun than promoting what you write, <laughs> but uh, it's really hard, you know, it's really hard, so... But San Diego as like a, you know, a guest or whatever has got to be pretty cool. It is. I mean, it's overwhelming. I mean, you definitely feel like a, a moat, like a little speck in the universe, you know, whenever you show up <laughs> with all those tons and tons and tons of people. I have to take a lot of time to like go back to the hotel and just like get in my a room alone and breathe, you know, because um, it's really overwhelming, but... No, it's awesome. It's really fun. But you always feel like you missed out, you know, because there's I too know, much fun. It's too much great stuff. I'll, I'll be in San Diego as well, but just as a, you know, patron. It's actually where I first found your books is, I think it was 2014, and there was this guy giving you hell about how he thought you were completely wrong about robotics. You just shut him down by going, I've got a doctorate in robotics from Carnegie Mellon. Just put the book down and walked away. I'm like, well, I think I'm going to buy this book now. <laughs> I did not do that. That sounds awful. You did dick. do that, though. <laughs> um, yeah, whenever I, whenever I did graduate, they, gave me, they laminate the degree and give it to you in a, in a size that will fit in your wallet. And I'm just like, oh, the the horrible dickery I could unleash with this. <laughs> and I just like put it away like, Daniel, don't do it. You don't want to be like running through a crowd like with that held up over your head. Like, let me through. You know, I'm a roboticist. Um, yeah, but uh, that sounds that sounds funny. I mean, I, everybody has really strong opinions on robotics and like what they think is going to happen. And some people take it a lot more seriously than other people. And I, I mean, I found that out with my very first book, which is a joke, How to Survive a Robot Uprising. I was given a book talk in Berkeley, and there was a dude that was like losing his mind. He was like, yeah, but what does the government know? And I was just like, I was making a joke. <laughs> you know? But the way it goes. So tell us about your, uh, your new book that's going to be coming out soon. Yeah, it's called The Clockwork Dynasty. And uh, basically, I, it... The story is told in the present and in the past, and the idea behind it is, on a high level, that there's this ancient race of human-like machines that have been living among humanity for centuries, maybe millennia, and serving all the great empires of antiquity, trying to figure out, you know, what their purpose is. And in the present day, so in the past, you know, we see them, the birth of these uh, machines, and then in the present story, they're running out of power and they're starting to cannibalize each other to stay alive. And so an anthropologist um, teams up with uh, one of these machines and they go around the world. She tries to find out how to save their race and figure out who built them. And it's basically an excuse for me to write a story where, you know, robots are fighting armored elephants in India, like during like the, with the, with like the East India trading company, like, you know, British soldiers and stuff. 
I had a lot of fun with the uh, historical stuff. Um, and then it's a, it's a thriller, you know, in the present. Right. So a question I have and spoiler alert for anyone listening who might want to wait. Uh, so your chapters alternate perspectives and timelines. Yeah. How, like, is that something you decided to do at the start and how did you outline or work through that as a writer, like figuring out how these storylines progress separately and together, or do they progress just yeah. separately or, you know, so I'm a big, uh, I have been really lucky enough to write in a lot of different mediums and I'm really big into the idea that, you know, whatever story you're telling should be told for the medium that it's in. Uh, and with novels, you can do so many cool structural things that you can't do in a film and you can't do in a comic book or in a video game or anywhere else. And so, uh, you know, with Robo-Apocalypse, I did the, the thing where it was like the found footage sort of a storyline. And with this, I decided, uh, yeah, that I was going to jump back and forth, but that, you know, whatever was happening in the past needed to inform the present and then vice versa, right? Um, which was super hard. <laughs> um, and what I did, like the sort of trick I used was, the thing is I'm not smart enough to just like really dial it in so that every little thing, you know, has to do with the other thing. And besides, I don't think people really want to read something that sort of logically, robotically, structurally laid out. Um, so what I did was I wrote future or I wrote present and past tense stories. Basically, each chapter is like a little short story, although, the, you know, whatever, it has a beginning, middle and end. And mm -hmm. I just chose one theme for both. And then I let my brain work on the themes, you know, so thematically, this one is about letting go, or thematically, this one's about trusting people or, or whatever. And then what I found was when I just kept the same theme in my head, writing each of these stories, um, when people would go back and read them in a, all in a row, they would be like, finding all kinds of really cool little call outs, you know, between each chapter. And they'd be like, oh, that's really clever. And I'm like, I did not ever, you know, think of that. Uh, <laughs> I just kind of found a way to organically bake these stories so that the, they would have um, a lot in common, you know, and you would feel echoes of, of stuff that happened 500 years ago happening in your present tense story, hopefully. Um, <laughs> so that was a, for success. That's a huge balancing act to, to figure out the pacing and like, I mean, you know, I like for my stories to, have the I like the action to sort of you know rise and then fall and it's like okay now I've got to line up that kind of stuff in these two really different stories that are happening in the future or in the past and in the present. Um, yeah, it's tough, but it's only something you can do in a novel. So that's what I like, you know. So God knows what Fox will do with their film. <laughs> Probably something like Highlander. You know, I mean, I I did diagram Highlander um, to see how they did it with their film. Um, just to make sure that it was like, obviously it's a great movie, but um, to make sure it's doable. I was kind of curious how they did it. They do it in chunks, obviously. But I mean, mm -hmm. how much fun is it like when bad guy shows up and he like, you know, you've been feuding for 500 years or 300 years. And, you know, this guy killed your wife like 300 years ago. Actually, they totally fridge that guy's wife, don't they? <laughs> Hooray for Highlander. Uh, <laughs> Oh man, they, they she's on some cold ice too because like they fridge her like when he's a Highlander, or do they? I forget. No, Does she die she, of old I, age. I thought she died of old age. Yeah, that's that's not real. They kill they kill Sean Connery. They kill his mentor. Yeah, right, 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 right. She doesn't die. Um, okay, well that's that's better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so. You said how Fox is going to do it. Is that like, uh, do you have a deal with Fox for oh, the book? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got, again, it was it was nice. They bought the, the rights or whatever. So, uh, you know, who knows what they'll do um, with it. Uh, I guess they're looking for screenwriters and directors and all that, you know, but those things can take arbitrarily long. <laughs> um, but it's very nice that they're excited about it. I mean, they really are. And they're staying in touch with me and stuff, which is cool. And mm -hmm. they bought the rights before the book even came out? Yeah. I. Uh, so, you know, ever since Robopocalypse, that crazy story, um, yeah, they keep an eye on, the, on novels out there. <laughs> like a close eye. They want to know. Uh, so, basically, 
I wrote 100 pages of Robopocalypse, and then I never thought, like, I'm going to go try to sell film rights or Robopocalypse, you know, on 100 pages. I just wanted to sell my first novel. Like, I had never, uh, I didn't know if anyone was going to buy it at all. And I guess they have uh, scouts in um, New York who leak this stuff to L.A. So all the studios are kind of looking at what the submissions are. And so somebody leaked those 100 pages to, you know, to DreamWorks and stuff. And so that's how Robopocalypse got sold before it was written. And so now, because of that, I've got, you know, I've got these crazy expectations. It's like, okay, well, let's go out with it while I'm still trying to sell it. Why not? So Robopocalypse was already in the works, well, in consideration in L.A. before you were a best-selling author? Oh, yeah. No, and, and partially, I think that's partially why it was a bestseller was because of, you know, Steven Spielberg, like, being attached to it. And, no, the Robopocalypse thing was a crazy deal because they got, I wrote 100 pages of this thing. I had never written a novel. And then DreamWorks bought it. And then I sold it to Random House or whatever, which is freaking terrific. Obviously, yes, like, jackpot. But then I, like... And I meet, went and met Spielberg, and then I had to write the rest of the novel. <laughs> and I was just like, better make it good. Like, <laughs> you know, like don't fuck it up. Um, so, so what's yeah, that, that pressure like, like? Like writing your first novel under honestly, that kind of pressure? I'm too stupid to really understand pressure. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just too stupid. I can't hold it in my head. Like, occasionally I'll think hard about it and then it'll kind of thrill me for a second, you know, like it'll scare me a little, but then I'm just like back to the minutia of, you know, writing a book, which is just really boring and not very scary. <laughs> uh, it's not boring. I mean, it's just a grind is what it is, you know? And so it's not a very scary thing because you do it every day, every day, every day. Um, so yeah, so it didn't really bother me too much. The downside to it though, was that, they started writing the script before I was done with the novel. And in eh. retrospect, I just, I mean, I just think that that's kind of crazy. Um, uh, so now, you know, now that, that, that's, that script has been rewritten a lot and it's, I think it's continuing to be rewritten. Yeah. I read Robopocalypse. I don't know how you can like try to write a script with that until you at least know the ending. Well, luckily now, people can, re whoever's writing scripts, you know, if they can. so desired, they could read the sequel too <laughs> and really <laughs> understand what was going on with the first book, you know. Um, and then, you know, I'm cooking up a third one at some point. So, it's like the Clockwork Dynasty, you kind of have it set up at the end that you are going to go into a sequel, right? Yeah, it's there, right? I wanted to, like, I thought hard about when I was writing this novel, I thought hard about what's the pleasure of a novel, right? When you read it, what is it that gives me the most pleasure? Where I'm like thinking, fuck yeah. Can I curse on this thing? Is that okay? Oh, yeah. yeah. Go right. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, like when you're reading and you're like, fuck yeah. You know, like, what is that? And so for me, I realized that when a world is much bigger than I realized, you know, like when I think I understand the story and then there's a reveal and I'm like, oh, shit, like that's my favorite part of, of, of like books often, you know. And so like I tried to work that in and I could not I could not hold back from pulling one last reveal on the very last page that kind of naturally makes the world bigger and makes you feel like, oh, wait, OK, there's more to this story. Um, I, I wanted to make sure that it was really important to me that I made sure that the, the novel was self-sufficient, that when you get done, you feel like, okay, like the story was told. I don't feel like I just got put on a cliffhanger. So that's actually where most of the editing came from. Um, talking to the, my editor, mostly it was about finishing the novel and getting the last couple of chapters so that it would be satisfying. So do you have plans for the second novel already? Because <laughs> I really enjoyed this one. <laughs> yeah, is that what you're angling at? Like, yeah. okay, uh, blah, blah, blah. Tell me things, Are you going to make the second book? Uh, I don't know what my next novel is going to be. I don't know how well this novel is going to do or if anyone's going to care about it at all. So um, if people love it, you know, if people want me to do it, I obviously, I would love to do it because 
the world is huge. I mean, I could go, I wrote a short story actually set in the world from Elena's perspective. So, you know, there's kind of like, uh-oh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, and you got to hear my ringtone as Sagan singing, a still more glorious dawn awaits. <laughs> um, sorry about that, rude. Um, yeah, I got to wait and see what I'm going to do next uh, based on whether anybody cares. But I would love to write the, a second one or a third one or a fourth one. So it seems messed. like a, a, a book that would really land it, lend itself well to some sort of like animated Netflix series. Like oh, yeah. I was just watching the new Castlevania. I was like, that ah, would, yeah. that would work pretty well for, for Clockwork huh. Dynasty. I haven't seen the Castlevania thing yet, but, but that's a new, that's pretty much a new genre of, right? Because there's not a ton of animated stuff for that's like serialized, I guess, Bojack. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's about it. But yeah, I think it would work well on something like that. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that idea specifically because you could keep the similarities of characters by the voice actors and then be fiddling with their appearances all you want versus mm -hmm. being restricted Over to live time. action. So like I was thinking of this, like how would you do that? Like, how would you cast someone who's Peter the Great's height? That's why he yeah. stood out so much. But yeah. you can do anything in animation. Well, if Tom Cruise wants to be in it, then Tom Cruise would <laughs> be in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Liam put him Neeson's on like the only actor that's, that's, that's all. But um, I can see yeah, that. it's true. Their appearances do change a lot over time. Um, oh, and I guess what I was saying earlier was that I, I have a short story collection coming out uh, early next year. And I wrote, a, yeah, I wrote a, another story in the Clockwork Dynasty universe um, from Elena's perspective. It's the, she's um, the, sort of the little sister to the main robot. Mm -hmm. um, and she's also immortal. And she's been compared to Claudia from Interview with the Vampire, the, the, the girl vampire. Mm -hmm. um, in a, some review somewhere, just to, <laughs> for people that haven't read it. But uh, she's awesome. She's one of my favorite characters. And I, I only wrote the book from the perspective of Peter the robot and, you know, June the, the anthropologist. And so I really wanted to get inside her head the whole book. I was just like, oh, she's such a great character. But so I finally did it. Elena was definitely my favorite. Like she really? had Me so too. much conflict <laughs> inside of her, but also being so logical. It's like she's very compelling. Yeah. I have a daughter. I have a little seven-year-old daughter and like this, she's at that age where she's doing stuff on her own and doesn't want me there to protect her, but I will, am always there to protect her. You know what I mean? Like she can't make me not protect her, you know, and it's a really similar to the dynamic that, that they have as brother and sister. So that's another thing I'm really curious about is the Avtomats. What are there actual conceptions of gender and familial ties? Because you have it clockwork dynasty. And for anyone who's played CK2 knows that dynasty have to do with like, well, <laughs> making babies. <laughs> and then killing well, your babies when they're Honestly, crappy. I chose the word dynasty there to invoke uh, China and dynastic succession and the idea of the rise and fall of civilizations. Um, so not really so much with making babies because they are machines. And ideally, nobody's thinking about what's under Peter's caftan, you know, like <laughs> during the book. <laughs> We're all reading well, the novel. It's easy to well, gloss over it. She says. <laughs> until Lezu kissed him. And then it's like, why would you do that? Yeah, yeah. And that, so that like made me ask a lot more. But well, then that's, like that's partially because she's as a character paired. She's so she's a dyad with um with Huang Di, right? So mm. So that's just how she's made. And so um, she's looking to replace that, the other partner in her dyad <laughs> with someone strong enough that, that she won't break them. And, and so that's why she kisses him. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. Like, so first of all, for anybody that, you know, for the people that haven't read it, the Avtomat are these listening. ancient machines. <laughs> and avtomat is the word, you know, automatic in, in Russian, and it's avtomat Kalishnikov and everything. But um, I kind of leave it a mystery as to where they were made and by who and when. And But I kind of do reveal over the course of the novel, you know, that each of them is representing sort of one attribute of um, humanity. And whoever made them, made them... Uh, to represent those attributes <laughs> perfectly as kind of like immortal examples of these human virtues, right? And so um, I think their contextualization, you know, as human beings, as, as men, as women, as adults, as children, 
um, is part of that representation um, that that they have, part of the that whatever their attribute is that they're that they're representing to the world. Does any of that make sense? You guys all look really confused. It also <laughs> seems um, like that unminding pursuit of a single attribute reflects mm-hmm. how blind pursuit of any single driven idea will always end up corrupting that single ideal. Yeah. You know, I, I disagree. So, and that wasn't really what I was going for. <laughs> what, what I was thinking was I want to simply, I want to uh, make it appear that I'm simplifying this idea of search for meaning and purpose, right? So for a human being, like, we're all kind of searching for purpose and it's really complicated. There's not any one thing. For a human being, I think you're absolutely right. Um, but these, these machines, they have the one thing that they're looking for. And I think that um, it appears simpler, right? Oh, you are just trying to satisfy logic, right? But I think what's interesting is as the civilizations rise and fall, the people around them provide the definition for what so let's say that your, your, your word is um, honor or, or loyalty or something like that. Like that's going to change based on which culture you're in and what age it is and the, the progress of science and all this stuff. And logic is the same, right? Um, doing research, I, was, I loved reading about natural magic and the way people conceived of science before Descartes, basically, like before we started thinking of the world as a machine, we thought of the world as magic and, and everything you had a devil or a, had a demon or an angel behind it, you know, and like, and we thought of science as like this natural form of magic, you know, <laughs> and that's, that's going to affect your logic, right? If you're, if you're just being super logical, but it happens to be like 1400. Um, so anyway, I guess it was about how you're always chasing that rabbit of, uh, of meaning, even if you simplify it down to just, you're supposed to embody one word, you know, you're still never going to get there or you're always going to be chasing um, and trying to do that. I hope I'm making <laughs> sense. You are, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So are you saying you don't word? know who made the, the robots? <laughs> I have not explored that in the story. Yet. No, and I know I'm you not, haven't explored in the story, but I'm, <laughs> I'm saying not willing like to share that information. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I have an idea, and it's not. Uh, what's really funny is, you know, I'm always dealing with pop culture, right? I'm always dealing with people's expectations because that's the context of everything you write. You know, so for instance, if you're writing robots, often people think that they're gonna be killer robots, you know, because <laughs> that's pop culture has led us to sort of expect that. And one thing that people are just always looking for is like aliens and i'm just like no i'm not doing aliens and robots like my whole rule with writing fiction is i want you to swallow one tall tale and then everything else is going to make sense and it's going to be consistent and the world's going to be fine the thing here is somebody made robots like a long time ago that are badass you know once you accept that the whole rest of the story i don't really ask you to accept time travel or aliens or like all this other stuff it's like just come with me just uh listen i want to tell you one thing you may not believe it but just believe that and then we're going to be fine i'm not going to ask you to you know um believe you know suspend your disbelief for a whole bunch of crazy stuff so in the second book you're going to explain who those old people are right yeah i can't wait to go back and and see that civilization and see what was going on and what the point was. I mean, that's promised I mean, they're not aliens, right? Because I was worried about that. <laughs> and I was, ju- and in a very long-winded way, I just said they're just, definitely I have to not be very aliens. Clear. <laughs> I, was, I was very worried about that. Were you really? Did you think it was going to be the crystal skull all over again? God, I was worried of something more like Prometheus, and it's like, oh, oh. we came from these aliens. Like, please no, <laughs> no, no. See? And in fact, fuck that, because like this is not about. This is not about looking outside. The whole point about these, these human beings have been like the same. You know, we've been homo sapien for like 100,000 years, 200,000 years. And yet you, we got like 5,000 years of history and we think we're just the super hot shit, right? Like, oh man, it's, we've never had it so good. Really? Like 95,000 years of blankness? You think that our ancestors didn't do awesome stuff? This is all about people, you know? It's about our respect for like what ancient people accomplished or may have accomplished, you know, 
Um, it's not about aliens showing up and giving us fire from from the deep, you know. Like, <laughs> sorry, that's a Werner Benji uh, <laughs> novel. But uh, anyway, um, yeah. So no, I'm I'm pretty much rabidly anti-alien for this novel. I'm not saying I won't write novels. With <laughs> I'm going to take them. that one soundbite and just put it everywhere on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, great. That's that's really yeah. That's a that's a really. Um, progressive viewpoint that i got here and especially in our like political climate <laughs> author rabidly anti xenophobic you might say uh. is there something um particularly with the legend of the chinese emperors that drew you to it as your focal point yeah so like what i loved is in Chinese history, the idea of, like I mentioned before, dynastic succession, right? This idea that dynasties rise and then they fall. And, and I think there's been, whatever, in China, Chinese history, there's been six or nine of these sort of the pawn turning over, right? The fall of civilization has happened like half a dozen times there. And they know what happens. Like 40% of the population usually dies. There's like a huge fight for who's going to be the new ruler and then you get, like, ideally, two, three, four, five, six, eight hundred years of everybody just calm the fuck down and chill out and, like, you know, pay attention to your own yard and everything. And, like, nobody kills each other. And, like, if you have a civilization that old and you know that it's so bad whenever there's a dynastic succession, you strive to keep everything stable, right? Because you don't want that to happen. That's like the worst thing that can happen. You know what it is. It's happened before. It kills 40% of the people, like hundreds of millions of people die. So, um, or billions now. And so like that really, I love that idea of the apocalypse happening all the time. And this idea of, can we keep pushing human civilization forward without having it fall apart and like, you know, you lose whatever 500 years of progress and then you got to start over again. It's sort of, it kind of talking about it out loud. It reminds me of the foundation series, you know, how those people are trying to um, do this on a galactic scale, like preserve civilization. Um, so yeah. So I like that idea that these Avtomat are desperate. They're going to run out of power and they need human civilization to get to a point where they can be understood they can, where a human scientist can open up an Avtomat and go, ah, here's how we recharge your battery, you know. But as it stands, they're more advanced than anything on the planet. And so their whole goal is to push civilization forward. And, and China is really, in my mind, like that is sort of the, a, a genesis spot, you know, like a place where that happens, you know, um, again and again. So... About how the the Aftimat are like put together, Batuo explains that body parts will reject. Mm -hmm. Oh, why does that happen to them? <laughs> yeah, you know that's a good question. Um, Lots. That's I why. I think it's. I'll, I'll tell you why. I, I mean, I have a reason. Okay. Each of them, and I tried to explain it. I rewrote that dialogue with him explaining that so many fucking times because it was just like it was not coming through, and it, clearly it didn't. But the idea is that each of these coherent avtomat represents one attribute. They call it their word, right? So they each represent one word. And they are a man, they are a woman, they are a child, they are whatever their outward appearance is, that's there to serve that word. And the only real pain that they can even feel is the pain of not fulfilling their purpose, not serving their word. And so if they... The idea is that if they modify their body too much, that's the same thing as straying from, they were built to, to represent this thing. And if they stray away from that, then they lose coherence. And the only way that, you know, you could really, really kill them, I guess, which this isn't explored in the novel, but would be if they just failed to serve their word or if you forced them to, you know, to, to, to represent the opposite of what their word is, I think that would eventually kill like the soul of an optimat. Like we see that a little bit when they're not able to fulfill their word because they're too busy trying to survive and it sort of is slowly killing them. Um, but it's kind of angsty, isn't it? It's kind of like almost, uh, it almost human. feels philosophical, like that type of pain, because I don't think human beings really can 
have that pain or, or know what that feels like, but. So, so the, yeah, I hope that, <laughs> sure, well, it, that, it that you're more confused. Begs a lot of more questions for me. Like why would you design a, the person that is supposed to be logical to be a seven year old child? Yeah. Be- and it's like, that asks a lot of questions. It makes yeah. sense for Peter and Talis to be like men because they're warriors. Yeah. And I guess it makes sense for Lezu and Huang Di because they're the yin and yang. It, exactly. Yep. But Elena... Well, so, the seven year, so Elena is a seven-year-old girl. You know, the idea behind that is that she's... Her function is mainly as a strategist. And she's there... You know, logic now maybe means something different than logic then. Um, the fact is, you know, the idea is that she's a strategist and that she, she could be in places where she would be ignored. And so that's kind of, that was for me, like, and that doesn't totally make total sense or anything, like, for representing logic. But um, I guess I need to cook on that a little more. I don't really have a great, I, I just wanted to write her. She was just in my head. Okay. A little yeah, girl with a porcelain, a porcelain mask for a face and, like, this precious thing. Uh, you know, like, in this powerful thing with an appearance that is completely belies, you know, what lies underneath. It was just a fascinating juxtaposition for me to write. But in terms of world building, I can make it work. I just have to think about it. <laughs> but I love that your mind is going there and is looking for that answer. And I honestly, I owe that answer to to people, you know. Like, that's part of the promise I make whenever you're writing you promise that it's going to make sense, you know. Um, I'm going to have to reveal that answer at some point in the future. <laughs> well, we hope you do it here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so something we get into a lot is the merits of present tense writing versus traditional past tense. Mm-hmm. And you pretty much focus on the present tense, and, you know, and this in Clockwork Dynasty, it's two different first-person POV present tense. Is there a mm-hmm. specific, specific reason, or is it just what you like, or what? I uh, feel like it makes it move, you know? It makes it go fast. I, I just want to describe what's in my head as it's happening, like right there in the moment, like never slowing down, always moving forward, and... Uh, that's just the way I write and the way I think and the way I visualize. So it's, it's, I pretty much write everything in present tense. Sometimes I write, so, you know, you'll see with the short story collection, that's called Guardian Angels and Other Monsters, by the way, and that's going to be next March. But, you know, about half of my short stories are probably written past tense like the usual way. But the, I feel like an author when I'm doing that. Like, I feel like, oh, now I'm a writer. Like, I'm taking the... <laughs> I'm like telling you, you know, this story that happened, right? Whereas when I write in present tense, I feel like I'm the character. Like, this shit is happening right now. Like, there's no storyteller here. It's just me and you. Like, this is the shit. You're watching this movie happen in your head. Let's do it. Yeah, because director Alex here doesn't very much like the first person <laughs> or the present well, tense. I'm not so a huge I... fan either. But I, mean, I can ignore sentence. it after a yeah. few pages, but it's like... I have to get into it, and it's so easy to just not pay attention to past tense. Yeah. So it, it doesn't well, feel intrusive. Probably but. most of what we read is the past tense stuff. So your, your yeah. brain just, uh, you know, just is used to it. So yeah. I'm surprised how, even when it stands out with Clockwork Dynasty, I don't read first person very often. It stands out for less than a chapter, and then I already forgot yeah. about it. Yeah, and the, and the first chapter starts with, a guy telling a story, uh, which is a little bit odd, you know. I kind of had to swallow that because I wanted that moment there um, at the beginning, but I probably, yeah, I don't know. It's just what comes naturally to me. Well, it is interesting that June's perspective is in present tense, but obviously her grandfather's story is in past tense. So it's almost like a a really nice transition into present tense. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Actually, that's a good point. True, true, true. You were unwittingly brilliant with it. (laughs) <laughs> hey that's that's what i want on my tombstone if i have that on my tombstone then i'm dude i did all right unwittingly brilliant <laughs> um yeah yeah <laughs> i just do i just i don't even think about it honestly i didn't make some big decision so why did you start with russia um 
because that's what I wanted to write. I basically, okay. I, uh, when I was writing Robogenesis, there's this character named Maxim who's in extreme Eastern Russia while the Robopocalypse is happening. And he's like a janitor who, who works at this super high tech, there's basically an AI buried in a borehole in the tundra out there in, in, in Eastern Russia. And his job is to just like keep it from overheating or whatever, you know, cause it's all these processors. <laughs> and then the fucking robopocalypse happens and all the scientists are losing their minds cause they know what's going on and they all get murdered and everything. And then this guy lives and he's this dude with an ax, but he's like, <laughs> he has a relationship with the AI, right? So he's like this interface to the most high tech, it's a secret AI. It's not the bad guy or the good guy. It's just, it is what it is. And I love that juxtaposition again, like of, of an everyday guy, like a dude with an ax, you know, and then this incredibly mathematical high tech sort of world of the machines. Um, and it's something I saw a lot when I was at Carnegie Mellon with my, my Russian friends would tend to be very, uh, the guys especially would, ha and I'm just stereotyping based on a few people I knew, right? So whatever, I'm not saying all Russians are this way, but I really liked how the guys are super masculine, right? Like they're like bros kind of, they drank really hard, you know, they're really funny and loud, but they loved stuff that we in the United States consider feminine, like mathematics and music and chess and like all this stuff, not feminine, I guess. I guess we just consider that like egghead brainy stuff or whatever, right? And it's like, that's not for like, you know, a, you don't like play chess with your shirt off, you know, like on a horseback, like <laughs> I'm just invoking Putin. Putin but could. Like, uh, yeah, Putin can do it. Um, I love that, you know, I love that sort of, and so I was, I got to reading a bunch of history and, and Peter the Great was like a total badass. Again, like, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I just talk so much, but uh, I really love the idea of clashes of civilizations and, and Peter the Great modernized Russia, right? So he saw that Russia was like this backwater. It was like kind of like not as far away as China, but it wasn't quite Europe or anything. And so he was like, man, we're getting left behind. So he just went to Europe and just hired like a thousand scientists, <laughs> just brought them all back to Russia and just modernized the whole motherfucker like in 20 years. And I love that. I mean, that's amazing to me. So I wanted, I like that guy, you know, I wanted that guy. And, and when you read about him, he's hilarious. Like he was six foot eight or something. He's this huge man. And, and this is like Napoleon's armies at this time were like, you know, it's like 1700 or whatever. They're like, tiny little people, you know, <laughs> so he's this huge monster. He's like a genius, really, really smart. He does all the different tasks. He was like Joffrey. Like he became like the Tsar whenever he was like, he knew he was going to be in charge of Russia when he was like 10 or 12. So, and he was just a hard drinker. He'd make everybody else drink and they'd all throw up and everything. And I mean, he was just <laughs> awesome. So I wanted that guy. I got interested in that. And so I just started writing a lot set back then, you know, and, and uh, it kind of evolved from there. It carries through in the story because I spent about two weeks reading every Wikipedia thing I could find on Peter the Great. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, there's, oh man, um, oh man, oh, I can't remember the title right now. Oh, it was my main research book for Peter the Great. I think it's literally called Peter the Great. <laughs> um, but there's an, it's a super thick, I think it won a Pulitzer. It's like an amazing, uh, you know, biography and uh you should if you're into into it you should definitely read it it is not boring that dude his life was not boring and i think when he died he just had never lost like this dude had never backed down from anything he'd never lost and i don't think that he understood that he could die like i think that's he died from like a urinary tract infection or something <laughs> but like he just i think he didn't get it he was just like this shit's not gonna slow me down <laughs> Some people and are just too like, busy. And then he was like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm dead. And then he just died. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was no succession plan. There was nothing in place. I think I've read, like, they think um, he was sick and he was in some village and there was some, like, Jumped fisherman drowning. Yeah. And he goes in and saves them and they think that exacerbated the problem. It's like, I'm sick, yeah. but... I got shit to do. I'm going to go save these guys in freezing yeah. cold I'm, water. I'm six foot eight. Like, I'm, I'm like the most... Yeah, he's a stud, man. So... He was cool. And I, and I, and and his the whole story with his wife too and how she succeeded him and everything is is all true and really crazy. It was really fun to place 
all of this in tr- into true historical context. Uh, although I had to avoid like the Forrest Gump scenario where, you know, mm. my characters like stride through every major <laughs> historical. <laughs> so really the death of Peter the Great is probably the only historical event that they're, you know, like around for except for fighting in various battles and wars and things. Well, you also at least allude to the fact that they helped found the Bank of England. A bank. At the time there were there were hundreds of banks. Uh, yeah, I, but I don't one think that's I'm still around. It, yeah, There's still like a half dozen, I think. And they've merged and everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's what it felt like, at least from my perspective. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, he no, founded the Bank of England. Good for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just kind of throw that in as an aside. To explain why he has a jet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's just my finance nerd coming out. Of <laughs> well, I so, mean, of course they would be billionaires. And like, and kind of what I was trying to make people wonder is like, you know, is Elon Musk, like, is he an optimist? Like, why do we have like these preternaturally, like, whatever, intelligent, successful, wealthy people that are so focused on AI and space, you know? like yeah. that's kind of part of the lore of this world is like who else is an, is, an, is one of these creatures, you know? Yeah. It's something you'll probably never want to focus on, but I definitely thought about like, how would you hide the money from generation to generation? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I know that would be a boring novel. <laughs> I um, love for it. Jacob. But that... <laughs> um, I, I mean, it does, it is a fun conundrum in Breaking Bad, right? You know, like when they get toward the end of that oh, series. Money laundering. So you didn't want every like powerful or important historical thing happening that to be mentioned this, but it stood out to me enough that when Peter returned to the house in London or outside of London and Elena was playing a song, you described who the composer looked like or what he looked like. And yeah. that was about nymphs. But I was trying to find that for a few minutes and I couldn't. Who was that? Oh, let me look it up. Uh, I think I, I have an idea in my head of who it is, but uh, uh, Galatea is what he wrote. Uh, I think it was Handel, but I'm not sure. Asus and Galatea, Handel, yeah. That's Handel. And if you look him up, I mean, I didn't want to like, if you look him up, he really does look like a total prick. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's got this really mean look. Let me see. where. Yeah, oh my God, he's, up, he's got this little double chin. He looks like a little smarmy bastard uh and that's basically who i describe right <laughs> it's like a jerk but i didn't want again yeah i didn't want to just say his name and just invoke all these famous people that hung out there with her i just felt like that, that would be kind of it cheap. was enough of a like this person was significant and i have to go googling and i couldn't find anything because i'm bad <laughs> that's but. too bad i should have let i should have given just enough hint that you'd be able to find it you know because then that's really fun I get, yeah, I have the privilege of being able to ask you directly, so I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so actually, that brings up an interesting question. So you've you've put this book out into the wild, right? How is it really hard for you to like handle it being out in the wild? Going, ah, oh, shit! I wish I had done this, or fuck, I forgot to add that, or something. <laughs> I uh, over the years, I've gotten more. It's hard, gotten harder and harder for me to let go of each novel because I know how specific people are and how how closely they read and everything and and how mean they can be you know on the internet uh but like so i feel pretty good about this i mean i feel great about this novel actually i i used to not do edits i would just do my copy edits whenever they came back and then i would just let it go but now i reread the entire novel re edited, you know, final, final, final polishes on all my copy editing stages, which I normally don't do. But, I, you know, I feel like pretty much anything that's in there, I take full, I mean, I've had a lot of chances to fix it. <laughs> um, I took all those chances and I feel like I cleaned that thing up beyond, it's sparkling beyond anything I've written before. Um, but, you know, so f- putting it out into the world is definitely hard, like, because you just don't know what people are, whether people are going to be dicks or not. So far, they've been really nice, you know? Like, by the way, selling books and people being mean are like two different things. Honestly, I think the more copies you sell, the meaner people are. Uh, And then you, it's sort of this weird thing because you feel like, 
well, people don't like this, you know, but it's just that the people that speak up often are the people with, that are angry, <laughs> they have like stuff to say. Um, so like, so far I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback on this. Um, and I'm really happy about that. I'm really glad that some people are really, um, falling in love with the characters and stuff and whatever. I mean, every time you write a new novel, you hope that you did better, right? I mean, I'm hopefully I'm getting better at this. I've been doing it now more than a decade full time. So Christ, I better have it figured out something. You know? <laughs> I think it was Steven Erickson who said when asked when he was going to stop writing, when the, he said, when my latest book is not my best book. Yeah, totally. And, and if you ask a writer, like what's your favorite book? I mean, Usually the answer is like whatever I just wrote because everything else makes me cringe, you know. <laughs> um, and this is like, yeah, the least cringy piece of art that I've got out there. <laughs> so since you're just talking about it, so you used to be or at least you were at least for a while, uh, you know, at Carnegie Mellon, got your PhD in robotics. You were at INRAC, right? Uh, no, uh-uh. I was never uh, there. I was uh, at. I think your I, Wikipedia is wrong there. Oh really? Huh. I, 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 know, I know I read it somewhere time. that you're at Interac. Uh No, I was at uh, Park, um, Palo Alto Research, and I okay. was at Microsoft Research and Intel Research, <laughs> and Northrop so, Grumman. And so uh, you're at all these like big time things with your fancy degree, and you're like, hey, I'm just going to start writing a novel. <laughs> you know, like how does that? How do you make that transition from working like high tech research to full-time writer is it better worse different uh, i wanted to be a writer first and then science was the consolation prize for science fiction <laughs> um <laughs> which i was basically doing the most science fictiony science that i could find you know and it was awesome i i really miss it i really i, I don't have enough ability to kneel in a neil stevenson like manner do both um but uh so what happened was I did the whole degree. I worked at all those places while I was a student. Um, and so like I had this idea to write a book, How to Survive a Robot Uprising. It was nonfiction. It was like a little book. People read it on the, in the bathroom, you know. And uh, I wrote it and then I graduated. And I had a bunch of like disastrous job interviews. And I was hearing the fluorescent lights. And, you know, I was just in all the offices. And I was just like, ah. And then... Robot Uprising did pretty well, actually. And, like, uh, Paramount bought the rights to it. <laughs> and they had a movie for a while with... Uh, with um, Mike Myers was going to star in it. And so Mike was cool. Mike was in it. Like, this was the Austin Powers era. And then he, he made a, a movie called Love Guru. And I guess, like, then everybody... Then uh, my project fell apart. And, yeah, but that movie was pretty racist. Yeah, that movie was rough. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, it made enough money that I was like, well, okay, I'm going to do a year of writing, um, and, and I'll just be happy. And then I'll go back to doing robotics whenever this fails, you know? And then I, it's kind of like princess bride when he says, you know, good day, good work. Like I'll most likely kill you in the morning. And it was just kind of like that for years. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, today went well, I did all right, I'll most likely go back to being a roboticist in the morning. <laughs> um, and then it just kind of kept going. So um, at this point, the ship's too far from shore, like I can't go back. I, I don't have, I don't think I have the same technical skills anymore. And my brain's different. So I'm a writer now. It's gonna have a hard time doing that math, huh? Like the machine learning math and Fucking stuff. Math. Yeah, that was the worst. The thing is, I was never good at math. I just had to work really hard. And then you get to a place where you're looking around and you're like, man, these people are working just as hard as me and they're naturally good at math. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is like, wow, like, I, how the hell? I'm just treading water. So the only way to deal with that when everybody's smarter than you is to, is to specialize, you know, find something very specific that you're the only one that does. And, you know, that was my deal as I just kept drilling down into my own uh, area of expertise until I was the smartest person in the room. <laughs> I was the only person in the room. <laughs> so kind of as uh, a matchup to the theme of the question of how'd you go from roboticist to author, but like, how do you take an idea into a novel? What's your process from like start to finish? 
Yeah, I'm pretty visual in my head, so I usually have like a couple of scenes that I want to see. Like, there's a moment when like Peter and Elena kind of break up, <laughs> like, and it's raining and they're in the streets and like this horrible thing has just happened, right. and like that was in my head like from the beginning. I was like, yeah, I want I want that moment when she takes his breath, you know, when she like fucking stabs him. Yeah, like uh, I was into it, and then like. Uh, <laughs> What? Sorry, what did I say? You sound a lot like me right now. Oh. We don't go on podcast without mentioning how Alex like wants to stab someone. Oh. You know, actually stabbing is an interesting point about this novel. Uh, <laughs> I tend to write very violent shit and um which is funny because I can't stand the sight of actual blood or anything like that. I like I don't even want to hear stories about it, but like uh I write very violent shit and my wife is my main reader. Uh, she's my main, like, she's no bullshit and she, like, is great. And I count on her. And she, I, at one point while editing, she just wrote in all caps, no more stabbing. <laughs> because everyone was, like, getting stabbed, like, every few pages. I was really overdoing it. And there's tons of focus in this book on all these stupid weapons that they're carrying. It's, like the which blades they have and how old they are and what they're made of. I'm just like, I love it. I'm sorry. So um, I had to cut out a ton of stabbing. But um, anyway, so going from the story, basically I have a couple of scenes that are usually really emotional. They're not so much, or sometimes they're just sweet, sweet action. And like, I want to make sure I get to those. And then I kind of build uh, around that. And then I just, um, I walk around and listen to like horrible, <laughs> horrible techno music usually. And I'm just like, you know, and nerding out and like thinking of um, all the shit that I just really want to see, you know, like if you're reading a book and you're like, man, I just wish this would happen and I could just see what happened. Then it's like, okay, good. Let's write that chapter. Like we definitely need that. Um, then, you know, part of what happens at the end of this, of Clockwork Dynasty is we go back and we see a story that we've heard before from a different perspective. And like, I just did that because I just really wanted to go there and see it, you know, <laughs> and it's like, let's do it. So, and then a whole lot of Excel spreadsheets and make sure that the shit makes sense and the pacing is right. <laughs> the real boring stuff. And then realizing that you can't have chapters that you love and like things that aren't going to fit <laughs> like, and then putting them into, I don't, by the way, kill my darlings. I <laughs> do more of a Han Solo sort of a I put them in a folder called snippets <laughs> and then I put them there and then I go, I'm coming back for you. Yeah, no, actually it's more like the thunder gun episode of, of always sunny. Like yeah. we'll come back for you. And then like, I put like just a whole chapter and then someday I'm going to, you know, get that out of there and put it in something, you know, that's what book two is for. Yeah. You know, book two, or I'll just change the names and write a short story, you know, whatever. <laughs> It's always easier yeah. to just plagiarize I'll yourself. I'll give you credit that the end of Clockwork Dynasty, I closed the book because I, I was sitting on the couch with my wife. She was watching Buffy, and I just said, oh, God damn it, I've got to wait three years for the next one. That was the first <laughs> thing I said after that. She was like, oh, son of a bitch. Yeah, like, you yeah. said you didn't want a cliffhanger, but it totally happened. <laughs> it's like every reader's dread is to get that new book, read it, and realize you got to wait for the next one. It's not too often you're on the. Night. That's my dream too. <laughs> not too often you're on the inside of that whole release date thing. Yeah, yeah it's, so it's a little strange dream, having an advanced reading copy. It's like it's not even out yet, and I'm done. <laughs> and you want the next one? Yeah. So yeah. How, you know, how long has the book that. been out? Like how Sorry? long is like how this, long has this book been finished? Like, oh, and what's uh, it like for you waiting for this release date and all that stuff? Yeah, it's it's crazy. Like. I forget about it. I move on to other to another project, you know, and then um, I think I think like the first reviews for this book came from Net Galleys, which are before the advanced reading copies. They're just uh, eBooks, and I don't even know if they're the finished novel. But people started reviewing this book in February of like wow. this like months ago, and. I didn't even know it. I didn't realize that reviews came that early. And I went on Goodreads to just look at my books. And, this, and then I saw, oh, Clockwork's already on Goodreads. Cool. Oh, people are already saying shit about it. Like, and then like that gives me, like, yeah, adrenaline. And I'm like, oh, God, what are they going to say? Like, and then like you go in. And there's this first review on Goodreads that is just like, 
I swear to God, it made my year. It's like this person, she loved this book. She was very, you know, what you love is a personal thing. You know, she's very articulate about why she loves it. It's just such a great, funny, quirky, positive review that I was just like, I'll always have this. <laughs> I'll always have my first review, at least no matter what they do to me. <laughs> I'll always have this moment. This person liked it. All right. So <laughs> did you take the screenshot of it and like save it off? Yeah. I sent her a galley. I was like, I was like, I love you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. That's the way it goes. It's pretty scary, but um, I don't know. I think people are going to like it. And, and I think that it's a different type of story. So I think I'm kind of growing and going and looking at different audiences and, you know, we'll see. Do you, when you're writing, do you th have an audience in mind or is it just the story you want to write? Just me. Yeah, I just write for myself. And then and also the like I take out the stabbing, you know, for my wife. <laughs> um, no, actually, I have a... a of my protagonist, one of my protagonists is female, and so I had to have a lot of women read the book. I mean, just as a matter of course. Um, and so, yeah, there was there was some ganging up on me about the stabbing because I argue for my stuff. Like, I don't, I never just go down easy, and she knows it. That's why she's so great is because she doesn't back down either. She's like, no, stupid, <laughs> you really need less stabbing. Because <laughs> I'll be like, the stabbing, and then my brain will come up with some stupid shit to make it seem plausible that this many people would be stabbed, you know? And then she's like, no, you're making up stupid shit. <laughs> yeah, June had a good moment, at least, when the sh with the shotgun. I'll just leave yeah. that. <laughs> she told me to take that out. Uh, my what? wife was wanting me to take it out. She said it's like... It's like an action movie. And I'm like, yeah, you know, yeah. it kind of is. It kind of is like an action movie. That's great. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing I did like about it is like it, it was really brisk and there was a lot of action to keep things going. Yeah. You know, that's, oh, yeah. That's I wanted to important. yell at you for your pacing Yeah, <laughs> because I couldn't, I couldn't figure out which chapter I wanted to stop reading at every night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad you weren't about to just be like, uh, yeah, your pacing sucked. So, do better. Especially um, with the switch back and forth, you're always a chapter disconnected from that last cliffhanger. And it's like, well, I, I, I could just read this next one to find out. Well, so my, my editor at, uh, at Penguin Random House, and specifically Doubleday, he's Dan Brown's editor, <laughs> which, which cracks. And when you read Dan Brown, like, he does those little cliffhangers at the end of every chapter. And the chapters are short. But the cliffhangers, you know, sometimes when there's that many, they tend to sort of blur together. They became, they become kind of similar. It's like, so I was trying to avoid that. You know, I kind of wanted to make sure that if I'm going to do a little bit of a cliffhanger at the end of a, at the end of a chapter, it needs to be unique. It can't just be too much of the same, but then again, my chapters are longer, so I don't have the same problem. That, and dual that, storylines helps. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, I want definitely, you know, hooks and buttons, man. You got to keep, keep them coming back. Yeah. I think I ended up reading in like three days, which is pretty fast yeah. for me. Yeah. That's fast for me too. Like, um, cause I'm under a deluge of, of books all the time. And so it always takes me too long <laughs> and then my blurb is late and then nobody will give me a blurb because I'm such a blurb, stingy blurb hoarder. <laughs> So what's like, we're, we're getting sort of near the end of our time here. Sure. So, but what's like, cause we have all these aspiring authors listening. So what's your like one bit of advice besides, you know, randomly get a movie deal on the first yeah, no shit, right? <laughs> Just be a total lucky jerk basically. Right. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I have lots of advice. I mean, I guess the biggest piece of like advice is sort of two pieces that are kind of combined. One is just like, um, you know, it didn't work out for me to write whenever I was younger because I don't think I knew enough. And I wasn't, you know, after I got this PhD and all that crap, you know, what that really was was just me spending like 10 years studying something that I loved, you know. And like at the end of that, I knew a lot, you know, and I had a lot of opinions. And like, I don't know, people were interested in what I thought, you know. And so like it doesn't have to be obviously some kind of degree or something. It can be any kind of life experience. But I think that 
as you accumulate more life experience and you are passionate and knowledgeable about more and more things, I think it makes you more interesting as a writer. I don't know if it makes you a better writer because the second piece of advice is that whenever you're selling something, you know, the, just the brutal actual selling of this great, amazing thing that you made, which is obviously a work of genius, um, there's the story that you wrote and then there's the story of you as the writer. And that story really matters, even though it doesn't seem like it should, because it's like, just judge the work based on the work, but they don't, they never do. They want to know why you wrote it, why you're the perfect person. And so I think part of the way that I broke into writing was that I was the robotic, the guy with the degree in robotics who's warning everyone about robots. That's it. It's like, that's my log line or whatever. And it's a damn good thing. I really do like robots. <laughs> I really do. I love them. I love thinking about them. I, I love everything, but I strongly suspect that I have no other choice. <laughs> right? Like if I want to just like about face and decide to write something totally different, like really, who's going to buy that? You know, like are people going to be interested in that? Um, so, you know, the story of you as a writer is important, even though logically to me, it never seemed like it should matter. But uh, that's the word. that's my advice. Cool. Right. Well, uh, we really appreciate appreciate you coming on. Um, you can find all of our contact information down the show notes. Uh, guys, is there anything we need to add before we get out of here? Uh, you can come back whenever you want. <laughs> yes. Yes. And check out his new book. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Check out his new book, Thanks, which guys. will be coming out <laughs> August on 1st. August first, which yep. will be about the time this podcast lands. Awesome. Yeah. All right. okay. Nice talking to you. Thank guys. you, Daniel. Right. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye.